Psalm 140. In the last song of David, the old shepherd king wrote these words. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. That's where the power is. The Spirit of the Lord, David said, spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. And we hear the Spirit of the Lord singing these songs. That's just remarkable to me. Maybe more remarkable because we've had the Spirit of the Lord teaching us through all these other books. Now we have the Spirit of the Lord singing songs. What a marvelous thing. Now we hear the Spirit more through David than through anybody else. You know, He wrote the majority of the Psalms. You may recall this. We're pretty sure at least 73 out of the 150 Psalms were penned by David, but probably several more. There's several that certainly bear his signature, if not his name. And tonight, as we draw closer to the conclusion of the book of praises, the Sefer Tehillim in Hebrew, once again we meet up with the sweet psalmist of Israel, as David is called. We land at Psalm 140, and all of a sudden we are back with David. And we will be. He he writes the next six psalms. We'll cover five probably tonight. But he wrote these, and... It brings to mind this question, at least for me, I was reading and saying, why now? Why all of a sudden do we have a little package of David psalms, Davidic psalms, here at the end? Why aren't they just grouped up with the rest of David's psalms? Most of David's psalms are in the beginning. In those 73 or so, we see most of those up front. David lays out the course, as it were, through the Spirit, and then other people's psalms and praises and songs come in as well. Suddenly we're back with David. Five, six psalms here at the tail end of the book. Why? Well, I I think you'll see that when we're through. I think that will become very evident and obvious to you why we're back with David here. But we can at least begin with this. There is a collection of Davidic Psalms here, Psalm 140 through 144. And the reason I would like to cover all five of these tonight is they go together. Like, shubab, shawadawada, diggity dingadong. <laughs> these Psalms go together. They, they are a collection. They fit together. They lead one into the next with a glorious, a wonderful conclusion to them, especially to the place where David is. These are what I would call SOS Psalms. Psalms of distress. As if David were sending out distress calls to God, one after the other after the other. SOS Psalms. So they all fit together. They all share that that basic theme of David in distress, crying out to the Lord, calling out to the Lord, calling for rescue. Verse 1 of Psalm 140. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me. From violent men who devise evil things in their hearts, they continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. I remind you, gang, that there are three perspectives that we've seen and used actually many times in studying through the Psalms. To read a Psalm, to apply these three perspectives works very well. The historical perspective, the prophetical perspective, and then the personal perspective. And if you'll apply those as you're studying the Psalms, many times all three of these come out with very rich meaning. And I want to apply those especially to Psalm 140 tonight. We'll see bits and pieces throughout the other Psalms as well. But historically, 
In Psalm 140, David jumps right out of the gate. He puts out an SOS against Saul. Psalm 140 is an SOS against Saul. David is saying, Rescue me, Lord, from my enemy. And in this case, the enemy is Saul. You know, for all of David's fame, you know, we look back at him and he's spoken well of, and especially among the Jewish people, oh, David, King David, our greatest king. We love David. And for all of the honor and adulation that's given his name nowadays, David knew what it was like to be hated. He understood hatred. Now, there's some evidence that there was some family dysfunction early on for David, that he was somewhat of an outcast, even within his own family, from his own brothers, which turned out okay for him because it allowed him a lot of time in green pastures and a lot of time beside quiet waters when he was out as a shepherd. And the nice thing about being as a shepherd is sheep don't hate. They're too stupid, you know? They may bite. They may bleat, you know? They may be messy. They may wander off and be stupid, but they don't hate. Lions and bears don't hate. They'll attack because instinctually that's what lions and bears do, but but they don't hate. And so David, early on, though he had some bizarre stuff perhaps going on in his family as a shepherd, he was in a pretty protected, uh, safe environment. Sheep and lion, bears, they don't hate. People hate. David learned this very quickly. As a young man, he fought and slew Goliath. And so suddenly he is now center stage in Israel. Saul, being a politician, invites David to come and stay at the palace and to kind of be his ward. you know. And he's there with Saul and he begins to fight for and with Saul. And in fact, if you look back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, you see early on what began to go wrong in David's life. Why this young man would come to a point where after being a glorious uh, victor, a wonderful warrior for Israel, now suddenly he's thrust into a place of running for his life and sending out SOS calls. 1 Samuel 18, verse 7. It tells us that the women sang as they played, and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. And then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Fanning the flames of jealousy, Saul's own son, Jonathan, becomes David's best friend. Saul's daughter, Michael, becomes David's wife. David's getting everything. Saul's children are lining up to spend time and be with David. Saul's people are calling out glory and praise to David. And Saul is coming apart at the seams. Down in verse 28 of that same chapter, it tells us, When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. So David comes out of the pastures of Bethlehem into the limelight and into the spotlight and everything seems good for a brief amount of time until now the king wants his hide. And he hated David. What did David do to deserve that? Nothing. In fact, 
He just behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. And so David was highly esteemed, verse 30 tells us. You know what the real problem was? You see it back in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. That was the problem. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And it happens. When the Lord is with you, the tendency for those who do not have the Lord with them will be to be against you. If you're walking with the Lord and others are not walking with the Lord, the tendency is to be against you. And I'm not, I'm not calling for Christian paranoia here. It's just a reality that when you have the Spirit of God and you are around people who do not have the Spirit of God, they're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. At best, they won't understand it. At worst, they'll begin to get on your case about it. And this happened with David, full of the Holy Spirit. Saul, relieved of the Holy Spirit, as God pulled his spirit away from Saul. Now Saul is just hating, because everything David does is turning to gold. Everything David does is right. He's getting everything, and I'm getting nothing. And Paul is not thinking as a spiritual man, he is thinking as a carnal man. And so he hates David with an incredible hatred. And it may happen to you. Indeed, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so David has to send out this distress call back in Psalm 140, rescue me, preserve me, he says to the Lord. Verse 4, keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purpose to trip up my feet. The proud have hidden a trap for me in cords. They've spread a net by the wayside, and they have set snares for me. Now Saul's hatred of David appears to be the background for Psalm 140. But it wasn't just Saul who was trying to trip David up. Not just Saul setting traps for David. Not just Saul trying to make life hard for David. It was Saul's henchmen. It was those who were working for and with Saul. Men like Doeg, who you know was a bad egg. Doeg, who comes along and is telling Saul, whispering to Saul, here's what David's up to, here's what's going on. Doeg, who slew the priests of Nob. Doeg was a bad guy. And he hated David. And David's beginning to feel, as we read in the psalm, a conspiracy from all sides. But when it seems like everything is against David, as he's crying out, rescue me, preserve me, keep me, Lord. People are trying to trap me, to trip me. David knows exactly where to turn. Verse 6. I said to the Lord, You are my God. Give ear, O Lord, to the voice of my supplications. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation. You have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not promote his evil device that they may not be exalted. David always knew where to turn for rescue. David had an understanding. It's the character of the Spirit-filled person. If you are walking in the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is in your life, then your tendency is going to be to turn to Him. That's right. And that's one way you know if someone knows Jesus or not. Because when life gets hard, they turn to Him. Mm-hmm. When life gets difficult or when people turn against them, they turn to the Lord. And we sang this earlier, 1 Corinthians 10.13, we talked about this Sunday. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And the way of escape is Jesus. The way is Jesus. If you're in the middle of the worst sin situation you've ever been in in your life, the way out is Jesus. If you're facing the strongest temptation you've ever faced, the way out is Jesus. It's always Jesus. Which is why for the person who has the Spirit of God in their life, prayer is first, middle, and last resort. The first place you go, the first place you turn. And we see David doing this. Now, if you just read through the rest of this psalm, the next few verses, you hear the heart of David and you hear him continuing to send out this SOS. But something begins to change here. If you read it, it appears to get enlarged. This psalm begins to be bigger than what can be sung by simply one guy. Verse 9, As for the head of those who surround me, may the mischief of their lips cover them. May burning coals fall upon them. May they be cast into the fire, into deep pits from which they cannot rise. Wow! I mean, listen to those pictures that David just painted there. Burning coals falling on them them into the fire, deep pits from which they cannot rise. These are familiar themes, especially prophetically. So not only is this psalm historical, it's prophetical because now we start to hear the remnant of Israel putting out an SOS against Antichrist, calling out Burning coals, may burning coals fall on the enemy. May, may they be cast into the fire, into deep pits. Listen just to a few verses. Maybe this will help put a finer point on it for you. Revelation 19.20 tells us that the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed these signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who have received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, cast into the fire. We know that in the judgments in the tribulation, and if you're unfamiliar with these, I encourage you to go listen to the Revelation study. It's online. But the first of seven trumpet judgments that God will pour out on a Christ-rejecting world happens to be a mixture of hail and fire, burning coals falling on their heads. That's interesting to me. Verse 11, he goes on and says, May a slanderer not be established in the earth. May evil hunt the violent man speedily. A slanderer. Literally their gang, it's a man of tongue. Someone who speaks well. Someone who has the capacity for glorious and grandiose speech. Someone who, like Daniel said, Daniel 11.36, will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. I think verse 11 is at least alluding to, if not a picture of Antichrist. As David calls out, and you see, you know, historically it was Saul he's talking about. Listen, listen. May a slanderer not be established in the earth. May, the, may evil hunt the violent man. Uh, the violent man. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.3 Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you. For the day of the Lord will not come until unless the apostasy comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes 
and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Antichrist is the son of destruction. This verse is calling down the violent man. There's a parallel here. Revelation 13.5 says, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Again, another parallel. This man, the slanderer, the man of tongue. Man of tongue and man of violence. Both very descriptive of Antichrist. And watch this. The psalm ends just as the tribulation itself will end. I know the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous will give thanks to your name and the upright will dwell in your presence. Which is exactly what happens. God maintains the cause of the afflicted. God protects His people, Israel. And He brings them into His presence in the Millennial Kingdom. And I see a picture here. A great picture, a great description of people in the presence of God having been rescued after sending out an SOS to their deliverer. Now I know what some might be thinking. Rick, you see everything through the lens of prophecy. Seems like you're always looking for ways to bend it to prophecy. Let me tell you, my response to that is, I only bend it... I don't even like the word bend. I only teach the direction of prophecy when the check engine light comes on. You know, you're driving down the road and that little annoying orange light blinks on on the dashboard. And you know, great, I got something going on here. I don't know what it is. They're going to have to plug it into the machine and figure out what's happening. Again, we have scriptural indicator lights. We have little check engine lights throughout the Bible. Certain themes and passages that God repeats again and again and again, which brings explanation to what's going on around us. Which prepares our hearts for what is coming. Do I look for prophecy as we're going verse by verse? You bet I do. But what I'm watching for is for that light to blink on. Check engine. Check prophecy light. It blinks on. And I encourage you to pay attention to what the Bible says about what's going on. Pay attention to biblical indicators. That's why, as I said before, reading this, I saw slanderer and I saw the violent man. And they just kind of... It's like the check engine light blinks. Huh. That really sounds descriptive of Antichrist. And as you read through this, burning coals, cast into the fire, deep pits. This sounds like the tribulation. Is it absolutely? Did David know that's what he was writing? Probably not. He probably didn't know. But the Spirit knew. And God is always preparing His people and alerting His people. Check engine. I want you prepared for what's to come. I want you ready for what's on the horizon. Jesus said, Matthew 16, When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, I heard a preacher actually say when I was growing up, you should never look for signs or ask for signs because it's an evil and and, and, and perverse generation that looks for a sign. Well, that misquotes Jesus. There's a difference here between, between the person who is discerning and the evil and perverse generation. Here's the difference. The evil generation is asking for more signs. 
Always asking for more signs because they're not believing in the signs they've already been given. Jesus had been performing signs right and left in their very midst. There had been incredible miracles by the hands of Jesus. The evil and perverse generation, the Pharisees, the leaders, they were saying, could you show us a sign? You didn't see the blind guy seeing? You haven't noticed the lame walking or the deaf hearing? You weren't here when all that was going on? We need a sign, they asked for. They're asking for more signs. Gang, the discerning believer is looking for the resurrected Christ. I'm not out looking for signs. I'm looking for the resurrected Jesus. What do you mean? Listen again. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus. That's what the discerning person is looking toward. And all these other signs that we talk about, even as they come up in Scripture, the check engine light comes on, we blink, and we say, oh, hey, is that something? I need to check this out. But we do so looking toward and thinking about and focusing on Jesus. I get emails and articles sent to me, handed to me all the time. And by the way, I love it. Bring it on. Don't ever feel like you're bothering me when you send emails. I sometimes have people say, I really don't want to bug you. I know you're busy. It's like, bug me. Come on. What's the worst I can do? Delete? <laughs> That's tough. Woo-hoo. That took a lot out of me that day. Hitting the delete button three times. Wow, wipe me out. Send me stuff. I love getting it. But what's interesting is as the stuff comes in and the questions sometimes that I'm asked, I, I get articles like comments are coming. Do you hear about this? There's a comment apparently coming in the next decade and there is now a 2% chance it could run into the earth. There was a 1.6% chance. Now it's up to 2 Flip that over. There's a 98% chance it won't. But I was asked a question, and I appreciate it because of the heart that it was coming from, but I was asked a question, is this, is this a sign? Go to the Word. Go to the Word. Is it a sign? What does the Word say? What does the Word describe? Oh, will there be comments? Will there be issues happening during the tribulation? Yeah, there will be. But I don't necessarily see anything in Scripture saying we're waiting for the big comet to hit, and then God's going to say, I told you so! You know? You compare it with the Word. You go back to the Word. The Mayan calendar runs out in 2012. I don't care about the Mayan calendar. God has not bound Himself to the Mayan calendar. doesn't mean He won't come in 2012. And as you know, I'm hoping He comes far earlier than that. But He's not bound to the things of man or the superstitions or the buzz that's the other thing. People who look at prophecy for a buzz. Ooh, something. Ooh, could this buzz? And, and they get all excited and they're watching the news and they're not reading Scripture. The singularity. Brian sent me this email. And I, and I appreciated it. This was... I'm not comparing you to Comet Guy or anything. Um, there's a, an article in... Was it Time Magazine? It's talking about the singularity. The singularity is, is this point coming rather quickly, the next decade, 2045, where they believe what's called the singularity will happen, and that is when artificial intelligence surpasses human intelligence. And there are some scientists and some you know, mathematicians and guys out there saying, the singularity is coming, the singularity is coming, and I'm saying, Jesus is coming. I'm looking for the resurrected Christ. I'm not looking for funky little signs. And then Brian in the email you made a comment about this is this is interesting but sad, you know. 
And it is sad because there's all kinds of things that come up and it makes for great movies. But for the discerning believer, we compare everything we read with Scripture. We compare everything we read. We say, does this lead me a step closer to Christ? Am I seeing Jesus more clearly now? It's discernment versus just asking for a sign. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We pay attention to the indicator lights of Scripture. Which is why, again, Peter wrote, As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Watch for those blinkers. That's why I point out passages that may, I'm saying may be prophetic. I think this is. I think this paints a picture of the tribulation and then coming into the millennial kingdom afterward. But you test it. You study it out. And you see for yourself. Historically, this psalm hits us. Prophetically, I believe there's substance here. But thirdly, is personally. And here's where I want us to land on this particular psalm. We put out an SOS against anything Antichrist. We call out, deliver us from anything that is not Christ or that is another supposed Christ or some replacement of if there could be Christ false prophets, false teachers. John said in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. What is he talking about? Hey, there is an Antichrist. There is a man, a son of destruction, man of perdition, who is going to come. But there are also many people of that same mindset who, as early as 2,000 years ago, were beginning to seep out into the world. Many antichrists have already come, John said. Second John 7, he said, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. See, antichrist is going to deny Jesus by his very, uh, by his very life, by his very existence, because he's going to claim to be the Christ. So he's going to deny Jesus. Anyone who denies Jesus is functioning with that same spirit. The spirit of Antichrist. And we put out our SOS, our distress call, Lord, keep us from anything that's Antichrist. Anything that leads us away from Jesus. Anything that would cloud our vision as people who follow Jesus. Now, if you don't ever need to send out an SOS, if you have no worry... And you never need to call out to God for protection or for rescue. As David said, three words I love is, Rescue me, preserve me, keep me. Verse 1 and verse 4. Rescue me, preserve me, and keep me. If you never have to pray that prayer, why? Why? I would submit to you that if I never had to pray, God, I need some protection here, I'm really not much of a threat to the enemy you know let me put it this way I would like for my name to be well known in hell I want them to know who I am Rick you're just begging for trouble no I want them to have an issue with the fact that I'm walking around messing things up for them I do I want to have to say God I need your protection I need your strength the enemy is coming at me. David would never have had to pray Psalm 140 if he had just stayed with the sheep on the fields. If he had just let Goliath conquer Israel, he would have been praying a completely different prayer. If he had never stood as a man of faith, trusting the Lord, 
If he had never maintained his integrity in the house of Saul, you know, while, while Saul was throwing spears at David, what did David do? Pick him up and throw him back? No, he fled. He got out of there. Every opportunity David had to kill Saul, and he had several, did he take it? No. He stood back and said, I will not mess with the Lord's anointed. To which I say, David, you're the Lord's anointed. You know you're the Lord's anointed. Take Saul out and you can take the throne. No, that's Satan's way. And David, the man after God's own heart, he just put out distress calls to the Lord as he was attacked viciously, as he was lied about, as he was hated. He just kept sending out SOS after SOS. And we've seen it throughout the Psalms. Lord, rescue me. Lord, preserve me. Lord, deliver me. But he had to do it because he was walking as a man of faith in God. Because his life was a threat to the enemy. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 2, We are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. An aroma from death to death to one and to the other an aroma from life to life. If you're around other Christians and you're walking in the Spirit, that's a sweet smell. That's perfume to us, man. But if you're around non-Christians and you're walking in the Spirit, you smell like death. You should be attacked. You should be a threat. You should at minimum be a conviction and a wake-up call. So something just to wrestle with with the Lord, if you're not having to ever send out any distress call to the Father because of your lifestyle, why not? Why was evil spoken about David? Because he smelled like the Holy Spirit. He just had spiritual fragrance all over him. And remember, Jesus again said, Blessed are you when people persecute you because of me. Because of me. Like David, like the remnant of Israel, our SOS is cast out as a result of our being a threat to the enemy. But the great thing is, we don't cast our distress call across seas of doubt. We don't send out, save us, help us, in the vain hope that someone will pick up our little pathetic message in a bottle. We go straight to the source. We go straight to the Lord. I love how David frames it, verse 7. Oh, God the Lord, the strength of my salvation. God the Lord, Yahweh Adonai. This is one, one of the few times in Scripture where God is actually Yahweh. Normally you see the translation Lord, Lord in small caps, and that's Yahweh. Well, right here, God in small caps is actually Yahweh Adonai. God the Lord. Not only are you God, but you are my Lord, and in you I have my salvation. Psalm 141, verse 1. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. What a great psalm. The the early church, the ancient church, at least prior to about 500 or so, used Psalm 141 as the evening for the evening vespers or the, the evening devotional psalm. This was the one that would be read in the evening. Psalm 63 was the psalm read every morning. But this one, Psalm 141, they read in the evening precisely because David writes, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up my hands as the evening offering. Psalm 141 was probably written during the days of David's distress as he fled from Absalom. 
There are a lot of psalms that David wrote as he was fleeing Absalom. Psalms of the cave, you might say, when life is caving in, when David's on the run. And in this particular psalm, there's a sense of David in the caves in the evening. He's fled Jerusalem. He's away from the house of the Lord. Absalom and and his minions are in control in Jerusalem. And David sits down and he begins to write, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity and do not let me eat of their delicacies. David's in a place where he could be bitter and spiteful and backbiting and spewing out all manner of curses against Absalom, against those who had turned against him in his kingdom, against all of his betrayal. But you know, dishing out spiteful words may taste sweet at first, but there's always a bitter aftertaste. And David says, guard my mouth, Lord. This SOS is very different than Psalm 140. Psalm 140 is an SOS against Saul. Psalm 141 is a personal SOS. David's saying, deliver me from myself, Lord. Deliver me from my sin. Keep my mouth quiet. He's praying against what's boiling in his own heart that he doesn't want to spew out of his mouth. Lord, if I dine on wicked thoughts, I'm going to belch them back up as sinful language. Guard my mouth. Proverbs 10.19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Are you a talker? See, I'm a talker. You might not have guessed that. I have a tendency to use a lot of words. And I've discovered over my life that it gets me into trouble. Right, hon? If there are times where I would just shut up, I would at least be seen to be wise. You know? Many words are going to get you into trouble. Now, notice David contrasts this SOS with the prayer of the opening verses. See, the opening verses, it's, a, it's an evening prayer. I call to you, may my prayer be counted as incense, the lifting up my hands as the evening offering. Here's my prayer, Lord. And then suddenly he says, about the same mouth that prays, this is the mouth I don't want to have cursing. So, Lord, as I'm praying and lifting up the evening offering, put a guard on my mouth. Restrain my lips. So that the only thing coming out is prayer. Put it this way, if you want to jot this down, don't let what I pray be any different from what I say. That's a, that's a good rule. That would shut off gossip and slander in our lives. Don't let what I pray be any different from what I say. Let me use my mouth with integrity. James said in James 1.26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. The religious mouth pours out prayer, pours out praise, pours out sweet speech on Sunday mornings. But on Monday morning, It spits out curses. That's the religious mouth. Because religion has this tendency in our lives, if we are religious people, we compartmentalize. I compartmentalize my heart. 
here's the part of my heart I'm going to use on Sunday, and it's for praise and worship and all that. Here's my heart on Monday, and it's bitter and backbiting and slandering and gossipy. That's religion. And you can play that game when you're being religious. When you walk in a relationship with the Lord, you can't do it. Because He's there Monday morning just like He was there Sunday morning. Amen. And He's there when you wake up and He's walking with you and He's present in everything that we're doing. That's relationship. And a relationship desires to be pure in heart. I want God pleased with me on Monday just like on Sunday. I want Him pleased with me on Thursday night as much as He would be pleased with me Saturday morning or Sunday afternoon or here worshiping on Wednesday. That the words of my mouth be the same words I use in prayer. Don't let what I say be different or what I pray be different from what I say. We're talking about spiritual integrity. Now, David goes on to give a beautiful way to develop spiritual integrity. If you'd like to develop it, listen to this. Verse 5, Let the righteous smite me (laughs) in kindness. Let him smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it. In other words, don't let my head refuse what is righteously said. Right? Don't let what I pray be different from what I say. Don't let my head refuse what is righteously said. Ever have a fellow believer rebuke you? Mm-hmm. I hate that. But I need it. How many of us like to be rebuked or called down by someone else who in Christ is kindly bringing the truth? We don't want to hear it. But we need to hear it. Don't let my head refuse what is righteously said. 2 Peter 4.17 We read recently, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. But listen, listen. When it comes from the Holy Spirit, even a rebuke is oil on the head. When it is Spirit given, rebuke, exhortation, conviction, these things become oil on the head is the writer of Proverbs. Solomon says, Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Anna Marie got her hair cornrowed. I've learned all kinds of things I never thought I would learn. And she got her hair cornrowed, and it's really cool. I think beautiful, really cute in the way, the way it was done. But it was the day after she got that done, and she's walking around the house just going, This is killing me, Dad. This hurts. And it's itchy. And it hurts. And and Cheryl got some stuff from from Salita, which was great. Thank you, Salita. You saved us. Got some stuff, some some oil or or ointment or something that that you put in in between the cornrows. And Anna Marie, it's just oil on the head. It's soothing. She's not itching anymore and, and it doesn't hurt. Special oil made it softer and easier to take. And it's the same thing with the Spirit. You see, when we get a rebuke from a fellow believer, if, if the oil of the Spirit is used, it softens. It takes away the itchiness and the grumpiness and the hurt. And, and, and it, it's easier to take. The oil of the Spirit. Gang, this is what we need in Christian accountability. I talked a few Sundays back about accountability. We need accountability. But the way we bring it one to another is with the oil of the Spirit. And then it's, it's gentle. It's good for us. And it takes away the pain and the itching. In the same passage, Paul describes the unity of the Spirit. He goes on in Ephesians 4.15. He says, Speaking the truth in love. 
We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, Christ. So here's the key. If you receive a rebuke, receive it in the Spirit. It'll be oil to your head. If you have to give a rebuke, give it in the Spirit. Which means you pray about it first. And it means you utilize the fruit of the Spirit, kindness and patience, love, joy, peace, you know, the list. You utilize the fruit of the Spirit to bring a rebuke if you have to do it. Job said in Job 6.14, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friend, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Christian rebuke one to the other is not about pointing out how wrong someone is. It's about helping someone draw nearer to Jesus. Embrace the fear of the Almighty. That's the idea there. Verse 5 continues. The last part's interesting. It says, Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. I had to read that two or three times. Whose wicked deeds? I mean, if, if we look at it appropriately, here in the Hebrew, it should refer right back to the righteous who smite David, or who bring David reproof out of kindness, that now David's saying, my prayer is against their wicked deeds. You know, I, I wanted to pull it back up to verse 4. To those who practice, you know, deeds of wickedness, the men of iniquity, I wanted to think, oh, David's praying against their wicked deeds. You know, the, the iniquitous men. That's not what's going on here. He is referring to those who have brought a rebuke to him. Well, what's he saying then? It's important to get this. Um, The King James translation is is good and, and I think helps understand this a little bit. He says, Yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. Again, what is David saying? He's saying accountability runs both ways. Okay? Those who bring kind, loving, spiritual rebuke to me, hey, I'm praying for them too. I'm praying against calamity in their life. I'm praying against their wicked deeds. Just as they come to pray against my wicked deeds, just as they're coming and saying, David, I want you to walk in the Lord, I'm going to pray the same for you. And by the way, if you bring me a rebuke, just know, I'm going to bring a rebuke to you. (laughs) But I mean it positively. I don't mean it as payback. Accountability runs both ways. As you pray for and kindly rebuke or reprove me, I will pray for you and kindly reprove you if necessary. And that's what David's talking about here. He wants them to bring a rebuke. The righteous may they smite me with kindness and reprove me, and I'm going to be praying against the calamities in their life. I'm going to be praying for them. I'm going to be looking out for them. That's what he's saying here which is marvelous and easy to miss if we're not pausing a bit. And he says in verse 6, Their judges are thrown down by the sides of the rock, and they hear my words, for they are pleasant. Now historically, David sees that Absalom's new regime is already crumbling. Their judges, the, the rulers there. Absalom's rulers are already being cast down. And the way we know that is casting down rulers was often a sign of judgment. If someone was going to depose a ruler, like we saw Mubarak deposed out of Egypt. Well, he just flew down to Sharm el-Sheikh, you know, on his little private helicopter. Not in Jerusalem days, not back in David's day. If a ruler was deposed, they would typically take him out to the edge of the city and throw him over onto the rocks. They would kill him. This is what I believe David is talking about here. 
their judges are thrown down by the sides of the rock. So he's already recognizing this regime of Absalom. This is falling apart. He says, And they hear my words, for they are pleasant, which means the people are already longing for the sweet words of David. They're already recognizing their loss with David out of the scene right now. Bottom line, gang, if the righteous rebuke me and I receive it, it's oil on my head. If my enemies rebuke me and I keep my mouth shut, they will fall. They'll fall. Now suddenly, this psalm takes a prophetic turn. Verse 17. Is that where we're at? Verse, or verse 7. Sorry, verse 7. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. This is not just David speaking. How do you know that? He says our. All right. He doesn't say my bones. He says our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Our bones. Picture of scattered bones. Does this draw any awareness to you in Scripture? Ezekiel. Good. <laughs> Ezekiel 37.11 He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished and we are completely cut off. God takes Ezekiel down to the valley and says, Look at this. Ezekiel looks out. Bones everywhere. All over the valley. What's going on here, Lord? This is Israel. This is, this is Israel. They're like a bunch of dead bones, dried up without any hope. He says, going on, he says, prophesy and say to the bones, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel and then you will come to know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. I'll put my spirit within you and you will come to life And I will place you in your own land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. And by the way, Benjamin Netanyahu quoted this. Interesting. The dry bones of Israel come to life and back in the land. Prime Minister of Israel quotes that. And just as Ezekiel prophesied, today the bones are rattling. Now, we we studied Ezekiel 37. You can go listen to that online if you want to. But here's the point. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is talking about a time future where the bones stand up. He saw this happen in his vision. The bones stood up and came together and were rattling. But they still didn't have flesh on them. They needed to be enfleshed. And then they needed to be filled with the Spirit. Right now in Israel, the bones are rattling. People are back in the land. They still don't have the Spirit. They're still lacking that faith in Jesus Christ that will complete their return to the Lord. But we see this in verse 7. Our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Verse 8. For my eyes are toward you, O God the Lord, Yahweh Adonai. In you I take refuge. I do not, oh, do not leave me defenseless. Keep me from the jaws of the trap which they have set for me and from the snares of those who do iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Absalom's revolt backfired. His regime crumbled. Tragically, this whole thing was a big mess. And Absalom himself, you know, was killed in this. Satan's revolt will backfire as well. Antichrist's revolt will end up costing Antichrist his life and his eternal soul. Ephesians 6.12 
points out to where we are, gang, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. And against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a battle raging right now above us, around us. It's going on. But you know, like Israel, God will be faithful to enflesh and put His Spirit in the people of Israel and place them safely back in the land. Those bones scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Gang, David says, My eyes are towards you. Rescue me. God will rescue Israel in the same way. God will rescue us. God rescues His people. And this is David's distress call in Psalm 141. Psalm 142, the third in this SOS series, is now a masculine of David. It's a teaching psalm. Eight Davidic psalms come from the same era during which Psalm 142 was written. They all have similar inscriptions in them. They all have to do somewhat with the cave. Cave psalms. And here is probably the cave of Adullam. In these days when Psalm 142 was written, here are the days. 1 Samuel 22 verse 2 tells us everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to David and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. In the days which David wrote Psalm 142, a masculine of David when he was in the cave, it was there in the cave of Adullam. And all these distressed and indebted and discontent people began to flock to David. 400 men at the outset. You know what happened to those guys? Any of you remember what they became? David's mighty men. These distressed people, this ragtag bag of misfits, outcasts, malcontents, these are the people whose credit card bills were off the charts. They had nowhere to go, and when you have nowhere to go, where do you go? They went to David. They flocked out to the cave of Adullam, and you know what? In their days there with David, they became more and more like David. They spent time with him, and they began to love him as their captain. And they began to personify him in their lives, which is why they became the mighty men. What a picture of us! We come out of life gang distressed, in debt, discontented, and we come to the Son of David, Jesus. And like these people, we begin to change. We begin to be altered. We start thinking more like Jesus. We start acting more like Jesus. The more we love Him, the more we become like Him as we gather around Him. And it's marvelous to see in our lives no more the ragtag outcasts. Now you... And I, we become the mighty men, the mighty women of Jesus. And so David wrote this masculine, a masculine is a teaching psalm, he wrote this masculine for his men in the cave. Listen to it. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I declare my trouble before Him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path, he says. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. 
Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. It's a marvelous psalm, but you need to imagine here this masculine of David in the cave. A teaching psalm in the cave. So he's there, and I can just imagine David gathering the troops. Hey guys, come here. I got another song for you. Now this is not the only time we've seen this. We've seen him give another teaching psalm in the cave. So he gathers the guys around, and the way David taught was to sing. I want you to hear a song I just wrote. I think it'll benefit you. I've got a song for you, boys. Listen up. Quickly, four things to know when life is caving in. When you are the distressed, the discontented, the in debt. When you're like these guys gathered around David there in the cave, four things to note. Number one, when we are lost, He knows our path. When we are lost, He knows our path. He has seen the end from the beginning. He's got it. He sees. He oversees everything. And I may be confused and I may be lost and I may be distressed because of it, but He knows my path. He already knows where I'll head. He knows where I'll end up. He's like my dad in the department stores when I was a kid. I've used this analogy before, but it it just is such a picture of the way the Lord works. I remember being in department stores. We'd go shopping on the weekends, and my mom and dad would be in these stores. And and that was the day, you know, when the stores would be like three stories, and there'd be all the different departments, and you'd go up and down the escalators, and we'd ride those things over and over. And all of a sudden, I'd realize I didn't know where my dad was. And I'd be looking at legs. You know, try and find the leg, the, the pants that looked like the pants my dad had on, or the shoes that reminded me of my dad. I was a little guy. What I couldn't see is what my dad could see. He, he was head and shoulders above the rounders. He knew right where I was. He had his eye on me. He was not letting me get far out of his sight. I was right there. As far as I was concerned, I was lost, but he knew my path. He saw where I was headed. Psalm 32, verse 8, David said, I will instruct you, the Lord speaking, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And that's the deal. David singing this psalm, Psalm 142, he knows in the way that I walk. He's aware of it. He's got his eye on me. When I'm lost, he knows my path. Number two, when I am unloved, when I'm unloved, he knows my portion. Or he is my portion. When we are unloved, or even think we're unloved, He's our portion. There's always one who loves us, the Lord. By the way, if I was Jewish, and the subject of anti-Semitism came up, and and I was subjected to that in, in history, I would commit this verse to memory. Jeremiah 31, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel when it went to find its rest. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. I would commit that to memory as a Jew. I love you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And I would say that over and over. In the roughest times, that would be my verse. As a Gentile, I have another verse. As a Gentile, I proclaim... What Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen our hearts in every good work and word. God loved me. He's given me eternal comfort. He has loved us and we have the proof of His love in the wounds of Jesus. 
So David points this out in Psalm 142 as he's singing, guys, when we're unloved, he's our portion. God's our portion. When we're low, number three, he delivers from persecution. When we're low, he delivers from persecution. Oh Lord, you're my refuge, you're my portion in the land of the living. When I'm brought very low, verse six, deliver me from my persecutors. You know, all, all this talk that we've had about persecution that comes along with godliness can be discouraging, but here's the good news. He is with you in it. And when you are persecuted, He's right there, delivering. And when you start to feel a little low and a little discouraged because of it, He's delivering you from persecution. And number four, when we are lonely, and I love this, when we're lonely, He enfolds us with partnership. He enfolds us with partnership. The righteous, David writes at the end here, will surround me. (laughs) In the cave... The guys are all around David there. He's singing this song and he comes down to the last line, The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. I can see David stopping. I don't know if he did this, but he hits the last chord and looks around and he goes, The righteous surround me. But I'm Mr. In Debt. He's Mr. Discontent and he's Mr. Distressed. Who are you talking about? The righteous surround me. And this is what God does. When we're lonely, He... He surrounds us. I've had more conversations with people whose families are a disaster, whose friendships are messy, but they come to the Lord and suddenly they have a family that they never expected. And they have friendships that are more marvelous than any they've ever had because they're eternal. And the righteous surround me because God brings us together in a powerful, amazing way. Psalm 107.41 says, He sets the needy securely on high away from affliction and makes his families like a flock. So David shares this. Boys, look at what God has done with us. Psalm 143, quickly. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness and in your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living... Is righteous. Now, this psalm begins with two massive pillars of truth. Two big ones worth jotting down and noting. Truth number one no man living is righteous. No one. Verse 2 says that. Why does God answer any of our prayers? Why does He ever hear us? Well, listen, God never responds to me on the basis of who I am. He only responds to me on the basis of who He is, which is the other massive pillar of truth. Not only is no man righteous who is alive, but the second pillar of truth here is He is faithful, He is righteous. He is faithful and righteous. Answer me in your faithfulness, David says. Answer me in your... Don't answer me based on my faithfulness, (laughs) or I won't be getting an answer anytime soon. Don't answer me based on my righteousness because I won't get an answer at all. No, you are faithful. You are righteous. John said that. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 3 David writes, For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have been long dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. I remember the days of old. 
I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land, as the deer, you know, panteth for the water. So my soul longeth after thee. I am thirsty for you. Answer me quickly, verse 7. O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your loving kindness, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. You hear the heart of David just beating powerfully here. Calling out again, SOS, SOS, SOS to the Lord. But again, in this psalm, the voice begins to sound more like a multitude than an individual. And as the psalm concludes here, I am your servant. Well, gang, that's Israel. Israel is the servant of the Lord. Psalm 143 is a cry, an SOS, a distress from Israel to the Lord as much as from David to the Lord. Israel, the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 41. The Lord says, You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. You, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. This psalm could easily and may well be sung by Israel during the tribulation as a cry of distress to the Lord. Lord, we are your servant. We are the servant of the Lord. This is the SOS of the servant of the Lord. When things are at their bleakest. How does Israel get there? I imagine there will be some Jews in the tribulation saying, How did we end up here? How did this come about? Why did we land in this place? I asked the question. I've been asked the question. Dave asked it several weeks back. Why doesn't Israel wake up to the truth now? Why don't the people of Israel see what they're not seeing now? I'll tell you why. Romans chapter 10, verse 3, Paul said, Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the only way to wake up to the truth of His righteousness and His faithfulness is to wake up to Jesus. It's to finally come to the point, as Israel will, that I cannot be righteous. The righteousness is not found in me. I've shared this before, but today, rather than sacrifice, because the temple doesn't exist, do you know what the the Orthodox Jews' view is of of sacrifice? Do you know what replaces it? Self-righteousness. That's the only answer they have. They say, we can't sacrifice an animal in the temple because there's no temple. Therefore, we'll do good deeds. And that replaces the sacrifice. (laughs) Really? That's why God gave the sacrifice in the first place. Because they needed covering that their good deeds couldn't bring about. They could not perform enough righteousness. And that's why Israel today 
doesn't know the Lord. Because they're still trying to reach Him through their own righteousness rather than by His. Jesus alone turns our attention to the Father. Jesus, His righteousness, His goodness, and our realization of our lack of righteousness. That's what brings us to the Father. That's what wakes us up. And that's what ultimately will wake up the Jewish people when they look up and they see Jesus and they recognize Him and they believe in Him. It will change everything. What is the conclusion of all this distress? All this SOS? One after another, these psalms collected here, again, at the end of the psalms, I think purposely, you come to Psalm 145. And from all the psalms of distress we've heard from David over the past months, listen, he is not a whiner. So one thing we don't see with David, he is not a whiny baby mouth. Okay, He's not just crying, hey, my life is so hard, it's just so difficult. That's not what's going on. David's distress, distress calls, his SOSs are to the one that he knows can rescue, that he knows will deliver. Psalm 144, verse 1. Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. My loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. David's distress turns it back to the Lord. For every SOS, there is a turn to the Lord. He doesn't whine, he doesn't complain, he just keeps coming back for the armaments of God, the faithful training of God. And by the way, let me just point out, Jesus was not a pacifist. Jesus knew war. Jesus had a warrior's heart. It was Jesus who said in Luke 11, verse 20, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The war Jesus was fighting was something different. He was fighting the demons. He was fighting the principalities. He was fighting the real battle, the spiritual battle. And He knows how to fight that battle. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. And then Jesus says powerfully, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. What are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying, choose up sides. You either stand with me in your fight, or you stand against me, and you will be scattered. Verse 3, David says, You train my hands for war. You subdue my people under me. Verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His day is like a passing shadow. We've heard that before, haven't we? Psalm 8. Remember how Psalm 8 continues? What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. Who am I, he says, and yet you've chosen me. I'm insignificant, and yet you make everything glorious. He makes everything glorious, and I am yours. What does that make me? Glorious. Because He is glorious. Suddenly, David makes a glorious call for the Lord to supernaturally, watch this, bust into the natural world. Verse 5, Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. 
Touch the mountains that they may smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and confuse them. What did Jesus say? Matthew 24-27 For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 7 Stretch forth your hand from on high. Rescue me. Deliver me out of great waters and out of the hand of aliens, He says, whose mouths speak deceit. And whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Aliens here. The word aliens, note this quickly, it's nekarbene. It means strange sons. In other words, not sons of God. Strange sons. Rescue me from strange sons. Rescue me. Deliver me out of great waters from those who speak deceit. Verse 9, he says, I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. Who gives salvation to kings who rescues David his servant from the evil sword I will sing a new song he says does that sound familiar he's talking about a supernatural intervention God to the earth touching the earth like lightning flashing and I will sing a new song wait a minute the check engine light just went off it's blinking there on the dashboard The prophetic indicator, gang, is going. Revelation 14.3 says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harp. A new song, David said. I'm going to sing a new song with the harp. The sound of harp is playing on their harps and Revelation 14.3 they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth Jewish people saved out of the tribulation. Okay Rick, but maybe the Apostle John was just reading Psalm you know, 144 and borrowed a little bit from it Maybe he's just drawing off of it for Revelation 14. Of course he was. Sure he was. Because Revelation 14 is fulfillment of Psalm 144. Where God supernaturally intervenes, which is exactly what David prayed for. Supernatural intervention. Touch the mountains that they may smoke. Flash forth lightning. Send out your arrows. Arrows confuse them. David's saying, do something that can't be done in the natural world. And He will. And when He does, when He rescues the remnant of Israel out of tribulation, they will sing a new song. Only now, the ten-stringed harp is not going to be played by them. It's going to be the Holy Spirit singing with them. He says, I heard the voice which was like the sound of harpists playing on their harp. God singing and accompanying the children of Israel, the remnant, singing a new song before Him in that great and glorious day. And from here on out, well, let me just finish this verse 11. Rescue me, deliver me out of the hand of aliens against strange sons, whose mouth speaks deceit and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Let our sons in their youth be as grown-up plants. Let our daughters as corner pillars fashioned as for a palace. What's he saying? Let our sons breathe. 
the oxygen, like, like a full-grown plant. Let our sons have the time to truly grow up without all this persecution, without all this fear. Millennial Kingdom time, gang. Let our daughters be as corner pillars fashioned, designed there for a palace, beautiful, untouched by the persecution and the hardship of the world. Let our garners be full, verse 13, that's storehouses, furnishing every kind of produce, and our flocks bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. Let our cattle bear without mishap and without loss. Let there be no outcry in our streets. Oh, how blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. The day is fast approaching when all of the SOS cries of Israel will be answered. And Israel, having gone through it all, will be so situated. The last part of this psalm so beautifully describes Israel in paradise, really. In kingdom security. Thousands of of flocks on the hills. Our sons growing up, our daughters growing up untouched, beautiful as they were meant to be. Everything right. No outcry in our streets. How blessed are the people who are so situated. This will be that time after the tribulation as they sing the new song to the Lord. From here on out, the Psalms conclude with great praise. Why these five Psalms of David tucked here at the end? These SOS Psalms clearly paint a picture of tribulation and rescue. And now suddenly, and we'll get here next week, suddenly followed by a hallelujah chorus of Psalm 145, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 50. And it's interesting to me because after the tribulation and rescue of Israel, Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6, is one big hallelujah chorus. So it's as though we've come through the Psalms now. And through almost the lifespan of Israel, we come down to the end and we hit tribulation and cries of distress and rescue us, Lord, and save us from tribulation. And at the conclusion of these songs crying for salvation, we have nothing but praise and hallelujah. I believe the day is very near. Oh, that it would be tonight. But what we see going on in the world around us what we have seen in Israel and what God has promised to do, gang, it's, it's very near. Check your engine. The engine check light. Check the engine of your heart and get in tune with the Lord because the day is fast approaching. Father, we thank You for these psalms. Lord, we can sing these SOS cries when we are distressed. Great place, Father, for us to go. Thank You for providing words for our prayers and songs for our hearts when we're struggling, when we personally are having difficulty. And Father, we see in these Psalms the history, David struggling through this, this man of faith who really wasn't so different from us. And yet he loved You. And we like him, we, we have Your Spirit. He had Your Spirit, Lord. So we thank You for the historical example David is to us. And we thank You, Father, for the prophecy we see here. These pictures of distress, followed by great calls of praise and thanksgiving and hallelujah.
Father, bless Your Word to our hearts tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.